Where did you all come from? <laughs> Everywhere, huh? Well, it's good to be with you. And I've been blessed already. If we had the benediction now, I don't think we would leave without having had some loaves and fishes. Uh, but there may be a little bit more bread and a few more fish, so let's have a prayer, one more prayer, as we go <coughs> a little further. Heavenly Father, we would see Jesus. I think about all the people that got to see him when he was on our planet. What a blessing was theirs to see the dust puff up around his sandal as he walked past. To see the breeze blow through his hair. See the sun reflected from his eyes. He told us that um, he was all we need. He also told us that where two or three are gathered in his name, if we would ask that the Spirit would be given that we'd receive an anointing that would enable us to see Him more clearly and to love Him more dearly. So I pray for that anointing for all of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Back when I was in college, there was a fellow that lived in Australia and he... His name was Jeffrey Paxton, and uh, he was not a Seventh-day Adventist, but he had a neighbor who was, and one day he asked the neighbor, you know, I'm just curious, if you were going to summarize what Adventists believe, if you could just like give me a summary statement, what do you guys really believe, what are you all about, what would you tell me? Well, the gentleman gave him an answer, and Mr. Paxton filed it away in his memory. A few weeks later, he was at work and he happened to be introduced to someone at the workplace that turned out was a Seventh-day Adventist as well. And he said, hey, I have to ask you a question. You could boil it down. You know, what is it that Adventists believe? Summarize it for me. What are you guys all about? And that guy gave him an answer. It wasn't the same answer as his neighbor had given him, however. And so... Paxton was just a little bit confused, but then he thought, well, you know, it's just two people. and It got him launched on a little mission, personal mission, that he began to, you know, follow up with, which was whenever he would bump into somebody who was a Seventh-day Adventist, he'd ask him that same question. And he became more and more puzzled because the answers he received always seemed to be so different from each other. And... Uh, Finally, he became very intentional. He went to Seventh-day Adventist professors and to pastors and to church administrators and to uh, authors and editors and all kinds of different people. And um, <clears throat> Every time he'd get an answer that was different than the one before, he actually ended up writing a book. And the title of his book was called The Shaking of Adventism. And the reason he wrote the book was because he was 
suggesting that Seventh-day Adventists were unclear about what their message was. He wasn't malicious. He hadn't been trying to make people upset, but he was just concerned. And he wrote this book, and as you might have guessed, it wasn't a bestseller among Adventists. <laughs> caused a lot of discussion among Adventists. And um, <clears throat> so it was on the tail of that that I came late to Sabbath school at Pacific Union College. You may have heard of that college. Um, and as I walked into the foyer, I overheard the voice coming through the PA system and recognized it immediately as Elder HMS Richard Sr. And I hadn't known he was going to be around, and I had wished I had been early after that. But I went ahead and went towards the front late and sat down there right under, you know, second row from the front. And Elder Richards was being given an interview. He was being interviewed by Dr. Carl Kaufman, member of the religion department there at PUC. And Dr. Kaufman had just said to him, as I sat down, Elder Richards, Jeffrey Paxton wrote a book in which he suggested that Seventh-day Adventists are unclear on what their message really is. And I'm just wondering, you know, Elder Richards, in few words, what would you say the Adventist message is? In few words, Elder Richards. I'll never forget what Elder Richards said. He rifled back. He was 79 years old. He rifled back his answer immediately, and his answer was, Jesus only. That's the Seventh-day Adventist message. Summarized. In few words. Jesus only. In John 10, verse 9, Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Incidentally, I think this verse is very important for Seventh-day Adventists. Have you ever heard people talk about coming into the truth? Or somebody left the truth? Or I found the truth? I want to suggest that if the truth we're talking about isn't a person, then we didn't find the truth yet. The truth is a capital T, not a lowercase t. And it's Jesus. Jesus said, I am the truth. And that's why in the front of my Bible, I have five quotations that all remind me that if Jesus isn't seen as the heart and core and central pivotal element of every doctrine we teach, then they weren't taught correctly. He is the truth. The truth is a person. It's all about him. All about him. And he said, no one comes to the Father except through me. I am the door. I am the way. Don't you love how Jesus uses simple language? I love this about Jesus. Jesus was not hard to understand. Martin Luther once said, 
In my church, I have more than 60 doctors, lawyers, and professors. But my target in preaching is the servant girl and the milk boy. And he said, if the professors and doctors have a problem with that, well, he said, the door is open. (laughs) Elder Richards, whom I just quoted a minute ago, he was the one who I heard say, the gospel is simply wonderful and wonderfully simple. Simple enough for children to understand. I love how Jesus uses simple language. At St. John's University, some graffiti was found on a wall, a block stone wall that was next to a carving, a, a, a sculpture depicting Jesus. And I guess some student at the university who maybe had had just about enough decided to write something on the wall beside where the sculpture was. And this is what they wrote. Jesus said unto them, Who do you say that I am? And they replied, You are the eschatological manifestation of the ground of our being. You are the charisma in which we find our ultimate meaning of all interpersonal relationships. And Jesus answered and said unto them, What? (laughs) I am the door. That's simple enough, isn't it? I am the way. That's simple enough. That's not complicated. I am the door. I think it's kind of neat that Jesus said he was the door because we pass through doors all day long. There are car doors. There are office doors. There are house doors. There are garage doors. There are bathroom doors. There are shed doors. There are on and on, on and on and on and on. Doors, doors, everywhere. You pass through a door to enter your house You pass through Jesus to enter heaven. I am the door. I think it's neat that he gave us that metaphor because everywhere we go, and I hope from this day forward, every time you pass through a door, I pray that you will remember that Jesus said he was the door. So anywhere and everywhere you'll be reminded of Jesus, of Jesus, of Jesus. Every time you open a door. Reminding you that he's the way. Now, aren't you glad he said that he was the door? That there is a door? What if there were only windows into heaven? No doors. What if all you could do was stand outside and peer through? That would be terrible. Peer through and see what you were missing. That would be terrible. And in fact, you know, I think that is what causes the greatest sorrow to those who are lost for eternity. They get to see what they're going to miss. They could have had it. It had been offered to them. But for them, heaven's just windows. For the redeemed, Heaven's doors. 
one door. The door. Jesus is the door. Our sins placed a wall between us and heaven. Insurmountable wall from our side. We needed a door. And Jesus said, I'll be the door. I am the door. Interestingly, he said, I am the door. The implication is, I'm not one of several ways into heaven. I am the only way into heaven. There's only one door. I am the door. He said, those who are looking for other ways are thieves and robbers. Thieves and robbers. So if you're looking to the way of self-sufficiency, that's not going to get you there. If you're looking towards self-righteousness, that won't get you there either. If you're looking to confess to some priest, that's not going to get you there either. If you're looking to participate in some ceremony, some religious ceremony, that's not going to get you there either. If you're going through some rite, that's not going to get you there. You remember what it says in the Old Testament, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, declares the Lord. Isaiah 64, verse 6 says that all of our righteousness is like what? Filthy rags. How much of our righteousness is like filthy rags? All of it. That's pretty comprehensive. All of it. And Acts 4.12 said, Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. It's a good name, isn't it? It's a good name. I had a friend. And we were living in Auburn, Washington. Lived right across the street. He was a neighbor. He loved Jesus. Still does. Loves to hear people tell stories about Jesus. Fresh stories. Testimonies of what Jesus means to them. He's always trying to bait people to tell him a new story about Jesus. So he'll say to you, so what has Jesus done for you lately? And then he'll kind of fold his arms and look at you with a big grin like, okay, come on, I'm all ears. Yeah, how can you how can you turn away from a thing like that? So you know, you, I'd say to him, "Well, let me tell you something he did for me yesterday." He'd say, "Now, now, who are you going to be talking about?" He'd say to me, "Now, who are you going to be talking about?" I say, "Jesus." Then he'd smile. I say, "Oh, that's a good name. Go ahead with your story." So then I'd start my story, you know. And every once in a while in the story, he'd interject. Now, now, who was it that was the key of this story? Jesus. Yeah. Okay, that's a great name. Keep going with your story. Maybe I'd tell him about how I'd said a prayer in a desperate situation, how God came through, you know. When I'd finished my little thing, he'd say, now, now, who were you praying to? Say, Jesus. Oh, he'd say, that's a good name. And one time he took me to the airport, SeaTac Airport, to catch a flight. I was going to be going to a camp meeting somewhere to speak. Nobody could give me a ride except my neighbor, and he took me, and we talked about Jesus all the way to the airport. We got to the airport, 
it was an exceptionally crowded day. and All four lanes where you can drop off uh, passengers were just bumper to bumper stop and go. People were just stopped. And it was like standstill. And there's like hundreds of people on the sidewalks and trying to mill through the crowd and get through the traffic. And So he stopped me, clear out in the fourth lane, way out. He stopped. I got my little carry-on and I started threading my way through the cars and I got all the way over to the sidewalk and now I'm being surrounded by people everywhere and I'm trying to get my way through. And, and I got almost to the door and all of a sudden I hear him holler out my name. Lee! I turned around thinking I forgot something. And there he is standing on the driver's side of his door. He's got his arms on the roof and he's looking across. And he says to me, so who are you going to be talking about? <laughs> and I looked across about 5,000 people, you know. And, <laughs> and he's like, good. <laughs> I said, Jesus. And he said, Who? I said, Jesus. And he said, that's a good name. And he got back in his car and drove away. (laughs) Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. It's a good name. It's a good name. It's the best name. The best name. little book, Maranatha, page 78, said... When sin entered, our first parents severed their connection with God and the light that had encircled them departed. Man can devise nothing to supply the place of his lost robe of innocence. Only the covering which Christ himself has provided can make us fit to appear in God's presence. Now here's the clincher why I'm using this little quote. This robe, Christ's robe of righteousness, This robe, woven in the loom of heaven, has in it not one thread of human devising. Not one thread. Not one thread. So you ask Jesus, how do I get to heaven? And he answers, I am the way, I am the door. And you say, could you please explain that? And he says, sure. I am the door. And you say, oh, okay. So you mean if we copy and imitate you, we can enter in? He says, no. I am the door. And we say, but suppose we go to church and we subscribe to the right doctrines. All 28 of them. He says, no, I am the door. But what about if we've been baptized and we're faithful in giving tithes and offerings and we've been working really hard at holy living? He says, no, I am the door. Desire of Ages, page 477. Christ is the door to the fold of God. 
Through this door all His children are brought within the fold of His grace. Many have come presenting other objects, other ceremonies, other systems. But the only door is Christ. Elder Richard said, what is the Adventist message? Jesus only. What is the only door? Christ. This verse, John 10, 9. I'm going to keep looking at it. I'm going to kind of unpack it, a little phrase at a time. He says, by me, if any man enters in. Look at that word, those two words for a moment. Enters in. If any man enters in, he will be saved. The purpose of a door is to give admission to the house. Right? I'm glad it's not the blue angels. Some people stand and look at the door. And they comment about the door. Maybe they even praise the door. They say, my, look at the gorgeous oak carvings on that door. And they stand outside the door and they talk about how good it looks. They say, that was a rich sermon. But they don't eat the bread for themselves on Sunday and Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. But they come and they look at the door on Saturday Others knock at the door occasionally. They pray now and then, especially if they get in trouble, lose their keys, run out of gas, maybe ask blessing on the food. Knock. But they don't have a meaningful daily relationship with Jesus that's based on spending time with him at the beginning of every day. Seeking to know Him better through His Word, through prayer and sharing. But you notice, the verse didn't say, if any man knock, he will be saved. It said, if any man enter in. Enter in. Some persons sit on the steps outside. Some people have been sitting on the steps a long time. Outside. They've been listening What's coming through the television waves, radio waves, leaking out from the PA system through the window. They're on the outside listening. He said, enter in. Some wait at the door. They intend to go in eventually. Just not yet. You ask them, Are you planning to go to heaven? Do you want to go to heaven? Oh, yeah. And I plan to. I plan to develop that relationship with Christ. I plan to enter into that friendship with Him. I plan to. Maybe I'll start tomorrow. Maybe next week. They're waiting. Just outside the door. They hope to go in eventually. Now, I don't know if they've changed it or not, but 30 years ago, anyway, down in the Sacramento area, 
there used to be an exit that you could take from the freeway. And it was out of the fast lane, not the slow lane. So you had to exit from the left. And not only did you have to exit from the left, it was at a place where the freeway was elevated. So you went down a little corkscrew ramp that dropped you back down to a lower level. And it was very problematic because many people who did not know it was on the right side would be in the wrong lane. And all of a sudden, there's their exit. And so they'd speed up and try to careen across two or three lanes of freeway to catch the exit before it was too late. And many times they caught the exit too fast. And where it said 25 miles per hour, they hit it at 80 or 65 or 70, and they ended up crashing. And many people lost their lives at that exit because they waited until the last minute to try to catch it. Friends, don't wait till the last minute to catch Jesus. And think about this. If Jesus is worth spending eternity with, isn't he worth spending time with now? Don't fool yourself. Don't say to yourself, I intend to get serious about Jesus later. Don't fool yourself. Because if you're not attracted to him now, you'd be miserable in heaven. You wouldn't want to go to heaven. Or you might think you want to go. But heaven's about Jesus. Heaven's really about Jesus. It's not about gold streets. That's just so silly. Isn't that, doesn't that, isn't that kind of just amuse you to think about? The things that we value most on this planet are what they make asphalt out of in heaven. You know, who... I can just hear people, I can hear mothers selling children in heaven. Don't track that gold into this house. I just cleaned everything. You know? It's not the gold streets. It's not the mansions. Jesus is what heaven is all about. He's what heaven is all about now for the angels. And one day he's going to be what heaven is all about for us. Which is interesting because Ellen White says in Desire of Ages, through a friendship with Jesus, heaven begins here, now. You can go to heaven today. Go to Jesus. Enters in. That was the key word I was looking at, or phrase I was looking at. You know, there are some who stand zealously at the door, guarding it, lest an unfit person try to enter. And this is a tragedy. A tragedy. I can tell you a couple of stories about my own congregation, my own church. Well, the last church I pastored. A uh, young man who was in the military came home for a brief leave. And his father suggested to him that he wear his military best to church that day. And when he came through the door, on furlough from 
risking his life for his country. He was met by one of the guards who told him, that's not a suit. We wear suits here. We show reverence. I have another friend who's been working, developing a community outreach center. It's called Sunbridge Ministry Center. It's in College Place. It's a really cool thing. Our church bought a former rest home of 27,000 square feet, and we're turning it into a place that will just serve the community. I was really impressed last night with the pastor's testimony about the Reno church that's trying to mingle with the people as one desiring their good. It was even an insert in the bulletin last And that's kind of the thinking behind this ministry center is to develop a place that serves the community with no strings attached. Because Jesus didn't attach strings. You know, we're told that there are entire villages that he passed through and there was not one person left who was sick or ill by the time he walked out the other side. And he didn't say, now you need to go to the synagogue if you want to be healed. I'm going to heal you, but you have to do this. Promise me you're going to go there and hear the worship talk first. No strings attached. He just healed. Which is one of the reasons why people followed him. They couldn't believe that somebody would be that disinterested, disinterestedly benevolent. Like, I'm going to help you, and I'm not looking for anything in return. I'm going to help you because you matter to me. So we have this ministry center we're developing, and this friend of mine named Paul, who's been one of the prime leaders in the development. He's been trying to draw people in from all over the community to get involved. And one day he was at Home Depot and he saw a guy who he happened to know was a builder. And um, the guy said, Hey, Paul, I haven't seen you for a while. What are you up to these days? And Paul said, Well, and he started telling me about the Sunbridge Ministry Center. He said, everything we're doing there is all being done by volunteers and it's all going to be done so we can give back to the community. And Paul started telling about things that we were planning to do and already we're doing. There's a free dental clinic, free medical clinic, all kinds of cool stuff going on, giving to the community, no charge, no strings attached. The guy said, that sounds awesome. Now the guy, 25 years before, had been a Seventh-day Adventist, but he hadn't been in a church for 25 years. He said, Paul, I can't believe it. The church is going to do something like that with no strings attached? Paul said, yeah. And he says, I could get excited about helping with a project like that. Paul said, come help. We could use your help. So the guy showed up. And he started donating hours every week to help with this thing. And as he did, he kept hearing more and more about Jesus. More and more about what Jesus meant to the people who were volunteering there. More and more. And his heart started to melt. Now, he had married a woman who had never been churched in any church. Totally unchurched. And when he married her, he was not attending any church. He started telling his wife about the cool stuff going on at Sunbridge Ministry Center and how exciting it was to him to participate and help. Then he started telling her miracle stories about Jesus' direction, intervention, and leading in the development of this place, which was just some wonderful miracle stories. 
And one day his wife said to him, you know what I'm thinking? We should go to church. We should just go back. We should go to church. She had tried to go to church for a while once by herself after they'd been married. It had not been a Seventh-day Adventist church. So when she said, when she said we should try to go to church, he thought, well, all right. And he thought in his mind he'd go with her to whatever the church had been that she'd gone to last. And she said, no, I'd like to go to the church you used to go to before you met me. I mean, if that's what they're doing, if they're creating a ministry center to offer that kind of service to the community, I'd like to go there. So they came to church one Sabbath together. She dressed herself as nicely as she knew how to dress for going to somewhere special. And for her, that included a lot of gold and silver. The two of them came through the door. A greeter approached to hand them a bulletin and welcome them and then stopped and looked at the glitter. The guy reached out his hand to take the bulletin. The greeter looked back at the guy, handed him a bulletin, shook his hand. The guy said, I'd like to introduce you to my wife. And the person turned and walked this way and left. And she turned to her husband and she said to this guy, it's the first time he's been back at an Adventist church in 25 years. And she says, I guess we're not welcome here. And they turned around and left. There are people who guard the doors. And you know what? We need to have some people guarding the guards. (laughs) Where would you want them to go? So they have a mohawk and they've tattooed their body and they've got body piercing. Would you rather have them on the street corner somewhere shooting up? Where are they going to get better? My uncle Lou Venden used to pastor the university church, Loma Linda University Church, for I think it was 18 years. Long time anyway. And I don't know if you guys are aware of it. You're probably more aware of it than others, but... Southern California Adventists have a reputation. (laughs) And there were some people from the Midwest who were visiting Loma Linda. And they attended the university church. My uncle preached the Sabbath sermon after services. He's out shaking hands with people as they come out. And this couple came and shook his hand. They said, Elder Vinden. And they were in all honesty completely serious. They said, we had heard that the university church has a smoking and a non-smoking section. (laughs) But we did not see the smoking section. Where is it? And my uncle was taken aback from it. He thought they were joking at first and then he realized they were dead serious. And you know what he said? Bless his heart. He said, you know, we don't have a smoking section 
but that is a terrific idea. I will take it to the board next Monday night. Where else do you want them to come? He said, if any man enters in. Desire of Ages, page 478. The Pharisees had not entered by the door and were not fulfilling the work of a true shepherd. Faithfully do the scriptures describe those false shepherds with these words. The diseased you have not strengthened. Neither have you healed that which was sick. Neither have you bound up that which was broken. Neither have you brought again that which was driven away. But with force and cruelty have you ruled them. Who is it describing? Pharisees. It continues. It is the gospel of the grace of God alone that can uplift the soul. The contemplation of the love of God manifested in His Son will stir the heart and arouse the powers of the soul as nothing else can. Whoever, this line, whoever turns men away from Christ is turning them away from the source of true development. Whoever turns men away from Christ is defrauding them of the hope and purpose and glory of life. They are thieves and robbers. We don't want them standing at our doors. Thieves and robbers. They protect the door, but they have not entered in themselves. And they prevent others. That's what Jesus said. You have not entered in yourself, and you're preventing others from entering in. Jesus calls us to enter in. I am the door. Whoever enters in will be saved. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Enter in. If we talk about being in love, what are we talking about? We're talking about being in a relationship with somebody, aren't we? We're talking about spending as much time as we can find with that person, aren't we? We're talking about when we're together, Listening as they share the things that are on their heart. Talking from our own heart as we share the things that mean most to us. We're talking about going places together, doing things together. Communicating. Spending time. That's what we're talking about when we talk about being in love. And that is what we're talking about when we talk about being in relationship with Christ. In Christ. It's talking about the same stuff that I just said. Very same stuff. Now, I'll look at this verse a little more. John 10, 9. It starts out by saying, If anyone enters in, he'll be saved. Notice that. If anyone enters in. There are no qualifiers. Did you catch that? None. No qualifiers. Revelation twenty two seventeen. The spirit and the bride say what? Come, and him who hears says, Come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. That's the invitation. Anyone, anywhere, anytime, anyway, welcome. Always welcome at my Father's house, Jesus says. Always welcome. Irrespective of their position, irrespective of their character, all are invited to come. Whether an honest man or a thief, whether a good fellow or a scoundrel, all are invited to come. 
and we come as we are. We don't clean up our lives to come to Jesus. We come to Jesus to have our lives cleaned up. So we come as we are. Everyone is welcome at my Father's table, Jesus says. Well, you know, it's one thing for me to hear Jesus say that. It's another thing for me to receive a letter in my church office from the prison, the federal prison that's just a few miles from our church. It's got an inmate's number in the top left corner. And I open up the letter and I begin to read. The prison allows the prisoners to watch television that the prison pre-approves. And our village church services were broadcast on television. So the prisoners, there are a group of prisoners, interesting, significant number, more than 60 prisoners in the federal prison that are watching the village church at worship every Sabbath. And the village church has a prison ministry they've had for 33 years. They hold four services every Sabbath, and then they meet twice a week with prayer meeting and small Bible study groups with the prisoners and the inmates at all levels of security. So I open up this letter, and the letter says, Pastor Vendon, I just want to write a note to say how much it meant to me to hear the sermon you preached on, and there was a date there, which had just been a week or two before. He said, in that sermon, you talked about the amazing wonder that God will accept anybody, anyhow, anywhere, any place, anytime, anyway. The sermon had been entitled, The Seven Wonders of the World. And I talked about how wonderful it was and how amazing that God would accept anybody, anyway, anyhow. He said, as I write this letter to you right now, I am so filled with gratitude for that message that tears are falling on the paper. Thank you for showing me a picture of Jesus that has unconditional love and acceptance and forgiveness. And then he signed his name. I'm not going to tell you his name. But I will tell you that when I looked down and saw his name at the bottom of the page, I felt a chill go down my spine and a shudder of revulsion. I recognized his name. And then what I did next, I'll tell you, I'm ashamed of. I was sitting in my office. I turned around to my computer. I googled his name on internet. And the first hit that came up was a transcript from his trial where he was sentenced to 490 years without parole. And I read about the dastardly deeds he had done. And at the time, he was one of the most notorious serial killers ever apprehended. And when I got to the end of the transcript of his trial, they had included a photocopy in the website of a letter he had asked to read that he had written, handwritten, that he had asked to read at the close of the trial. It was a letter of apology 
to the families that were grieving. And I looked at the letter he had written on the internet. I looked at that facsimile of it. And then I picked up the letter I had received and I held the two letters side by side and I looked at the signature at the bottom and they were identical, you know. And I felt sick to my stomach. And I thought, I can't write back to this guy. I just can't. I, I, I am so repulsed by what he did. Isn't it neat how even the chipmunks attend Sabbath service? Yeah, anyone can enter in. I went home that day from work and I said to Margie, you know, I said, I got this letter from this fellow. I named him and um, he thanked me for painting a picture of Jesus that gave him hope. But I said, I don't, I just, I can't bring myself to write back. And Margie, oh my word. <laughs> yeah. Somebody strung a bunch of nuts across the front of the platform. <laughs> no, not really. <clears throat> Last night I had two baby raccoons that came up to me and just looked up at me like, so what are you at Tahoe for? Uh, that was cool. And then their mother chirped at them and they left. So I said to Margie, I can't write back. I feel too disgusted about what he did. Margie said, Lee, you have to write back. You've got to write back. You know, you're representing Jesus. Jesus would write back. Jesus would visit him in prison. Well, I said, you know, I know you're right, but I just, I'm just so in turmoil inside. Next morning, I got up and I was having my own quiet time with the Lord. And as I was reading, the Holy Spirit led me through some passages and then some impressions in my mind. And I'll just give you the impressions that the Spirit gave to me. And this is what they were. They said, the Spirit seemed to say to me, Lee, don't forget. <clears throat> the ground is level at the foot of the cross. You may not be in prison serving a 490-year term, but you are every bit as needful of a Savior as He is, and without the Savior, you are dead meat too. Wow, you know, that's true. That's the reality. You know, if, if you could draw a line from New York to San Francisco, that serial killer put him over here and put me over here, and let's call that road from the, between the two cities the road to heaven. I might be a couple miles closer to Frisco than he is as far as the journey that we're on. But I, that's still an impossible distance to walk. You know, and um, so aren't you glad that Jesus said, anyone, anyone who enters in, anyone will be saved? Well, you say, but you don't know how bad I am. I mean, I heard what you just said about that guy, but you don't know how bad I am. I've been quite a, a scorner of Christ's love and his efforts to draw me his direction. Don't forget 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
He takes us just the way we are, but He loves us too much to leave us that way. So, there is pardon and there is power to live with Christ within. So, character is not a condition for coming to Christ. Neither is feeling. Jesus never said anything about feeling. In 1 John 5, from 11 to 13, we read that he who has the Son has eternal life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have eternal life. It doesn't say as long as you feel like it's true. It's true whether you feel it or not. Right? But did you notice? I'm going to go to it because I want to read the whole thing and I only had part of the verse in my notes. 1 John 5, starting with verse 11. And this is the record that God has given to us, eternal life. What kind of life is he talking about? What kind of life? Eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Then verse 12. He that has the Son has life. What kind of life is he talking about? Eternal life. You would be astounded at how many Seventh-day Adventists lack assurance of salvation. You'd be astounded. You'd be astounded at how many of our young people and our teenagers think if they were killed in a car accident later today, they'd be lost. You'd be astounded. The overwhelming majority. You ask them, well, are you going to be saved if you were killed in a car accident? Well, I, I would like to think I would be. I like, I'd hope I could be, but I don't know if I will be. Unassured. But the Bible said, he that has the Son has eternal life. So can you know if you have eternal life? Yeah, yeah all you have to do is know if you have the Son. Right? So what does it mean to have the Son? To have the Son is another way of saying, if I told you I have a friend, I have a girlfriend, I have a boyfriend, I have a husband, I have a wife, what does that mean to you? It means I have a relationship with somebody, right? Back to those things, those ingredients of relationship that I used a few moments ago. It means that we communicate together. We do stuff. We go places. We hang out. We share. We talk back and forth. We listen. We enjoy each other's company. And maybe we even do stuff to try and help the other person. Right? That's what it means. Okay, can you know if you are seeking to communicate with Jesus and learn of Him? Yes, you can know that. Can you know if you spent time in your Bible for the purpose of becoming better acquainted with Christ? Yes, you can know that. If you're seeking to know Jesus day by day, you have the Son. If you have the Son, you have eternal life. This is not an if, maybe, hopefully, probably, you know, it is, it's, it's a, you have it. It says has, present tense, eternal life. And then John, just, just to make sure we didn't get confused about this, verse 13, he goes, Now these things I have written to you so that you might know you have eternal life. So he said, I want you to know. Don't be, don't be confused about this. Don't be confused. You have the Son. You have eternal life. Yeah, but what if I keep messing up? See, that's what the lack of assurance is based on. Failure to perform at a level they think is acceptable to God. Which tells you what? It tells you that in their heart of hearts, they believe ultimately that their performance determines their future. And if your performance determines your future, then you're thinking about being saved by works. 
When the Bible is very clear, you're never going to be saved by works. It's not about what you do. It's about who you know. But who you know will change what you do. But he changes it. You don't. He changes it. So you don't. You come to him to have what 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 you do changed. You don't work on what you do. That would be attacking the problem at the wrong location. So you must seek Jesus. You must seek Jesus. And if you are in relationship with Jesus, then you have the Son. I would like for you to imagine an elevator. We'll call it the relationship elevator. So you know the door opens. And Jesus is standing there with the buttons, controlling the thing. And he says to you, oh, I'm so glad you're here. I'm I'm especially fond of you. And he says, where would you like to go? And you say, I'd like to go all the way to the top. You're entering into the relationship elevator. Okay, The elevator stands for your daily effort to become better acquainted with Jesus, morning by morning, day by day, through his word, through prayer, sharing. That's, you got that, the elevator, what it is? So he says, where would you like to go? He says, I'm going to go to the top. He says, good choice, and he punches in, 777 or whatever it would be. And the elevator starts going up, and you're in the elevator with Jesus. You're in a relationship with Jesus, and he's going to take you to the top floor. That's heaven. And as you're going up, the elevator lurches, and you lose your balance, and you fall to the floor. I love this illustration. I just love this illustration. So you've fallen. But you're in relationship. You're in what, what elevator? The relationship elevator. So you've fallen in the relationship elevator. Now here's the, here's the, cute, here's the, the awesome kernel of this illustration. If you fall in an elevator, do you stop going up? Isn't that cool? <laughs> you don't stop going up. Your performance inside the elevator doesn't determine whether you're going to get out at the top or not. You're still going up. But here's what Jesus does. He leans over and he says, hey, I'm sorry, you seem to have fallen. Let me give you a hand up. And he brings you up and then he puts your hand on his shoulder and he says, now just lean on me. If you will lean on me, I promise I will not let you fall. And so, I love that song, learning to lean, learning to lean, learning to lean on Jesus, finding more power than I've ever seen, learning to lean on him. He says, as long as you lean on me, depend on me, submit to me, surrender to me, lean on me, I won't let you fall. The only time we mess up is when we trust to our own strength. And then we hit the ground. But as we're going up in the relationship elevator and we're trying to learn to lean on Jesus, then one day we start feeling like, you know, I think... I think I got my sea legs, my elevator legs. And you go, hey, check it out, Jesus. Kind of proud of me, aren't you? I mean, I'm doing okay now. I don't need the training wheels anymore. And all of a sudden, boom! And I hit the ground. And Jesus comes over, and he's probably chuckling. And he grabs me by the hand. He says, hey, there you are again. Maybe you didn't catch what I said. Let me give you a hand up, and then let me tell you, the key to the thing is leaning on me. It's not trying to do it yourself. It's not trying to learn how to perfect a Christ-like character in your strength. It's leaning on me, staying in relationship, and I promise I'll get you to the top floor. And when I get you to the top floor, I also promise you one other thing. I will have completed the work I began in your life. That's what it says in Philippians. He started it. He promises to bring it to completion by the time you get to floor 777. We need to be reminded of this truth over and over and over because Satan loves to beat us up with our failures. 
And he likes to tell us that our failures have caused, our poor performance has caused us to be kicked out of the elevator. Jesus does not kick people out of the elevator for poor performance any more than parents kick babies out of the house who have still soiled their diaper. When a baby soils a diaper or spills the milk, parents don't say, you're out of here until you've got your act together. They say, we have pampers, we have wipes, we have powder, we have laundry detergent, we can clean this mess up, and we are committed to continue to be your parents and to nurture you and to love you and to care for you. And we also know that sooner or later, one day you won't spill the milk as often and you won't soil the diapers, and that's okay. But because our acceptance and love for you, your being a child in this household is not dependent on whether or not you're potty trained. Now, if that's the way human parents are, why do we get this picture of God that throws us out every time we mess up? That's not our Heavenly Father. If our earthly parents wouldn't kick us out for spilling the milk, certainly our Heavenly Father is not going to kick us out when we fail and fall while trying to learn to lean. As long as I'm in the relationship elevator, I have the promise that He'll take me to the top. And he won't kick me out because of my failures. And he'll continue to work with me. They have heavenly wipes, heavenly pampers, heavenly powder, heavenly laundry soap. And they'll keep working until they have cleansed us from all unrighteousness. Well, the verse also says, By me, if any man enters, he will be saved. Saved from the guilt of sin, saved from the power of sin, and one day saved from the world of sin. I am the door. If any man enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out. Will go in and out. There is no liberty or freedom greater than being in Christ. No liberty or freedom greater than being in Christ. Many people think that if they were to enter into a relationship with Christ now, they're going to miss out on something. And the truth is they will. They'll miss out on a lot of things. They'll miss out on emptiness. They'll miss out on purposelessness. They'll miss out on all kinds of addictions. And what will they receive in exchange? Freedom. John 8, 36, if the Son sets you free, you will be what? free indeed. There is no freedom outside of the Son. If you're not in relationship with Jesus, you are a slave to whatever it takes to get you through another day. You're a slave to that. You're a slave to sleeping pills. You're a slave to television. You're a slave to iPods. You're a slave to whatever it is that can put your mind in neutral and keep you from remembering that this life is empty and purposeless apart from Christ. You're a slave. And it's the worst slavery. Oh, it's candy-coated, but it's still a bitter pill. The sun sets you free. You'll be free indeed. Freedom to go to bed at night unworried about whether or not you're going to wake up in the morning. Don't have to worry. Because you have the sun and you have eternal life if you have him. So if you don't wake up in the morning, hey, you will wake up in the morning. Freedom to face losses. Freedom to face crosses. Knowing that God's grace is guaranteed to see you through if you will continue to depend on Him 
as his helpless child. Freedom from confusion. Freedom from uncertainty as he promises to guide and lead you into the path that he has prepared for you. The verse once again, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Those are the last three words. And find pasture. Philippians 4.19 says, God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Every need of yours. Every need of yours. What does that include? You do a study in scripture of all things that includes. He promises to supply joy, security, peace, freedom, freedom to be yourself, freedom to live without fear, friendship, his friendship, guidance, strength, a life of meaning and usefulness, rescue, deliverance, direction, companionship, encouragement. He promises to be your cheerleader, your cheerleader saying, you keep, keep coming. Keep coming. You're going to make it. The finish line will get you there. Your cheerleader. He is faithful. He is dependable. He is your companion. He promises you loyalty. He promises you that one day when your name comes up for judgment, he will be your advocate. He will be your lawyer. He will be your judge. How can you lose on a trial like that? Imagine the lawyer and the judge being the same person. You are you're guaranteed the outcome. And that's why he can say, I'm going to give you life more abundantly. And then he says, on top of it all, I'll give you world without end. World without end. My last illustration. C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis. Working at Oxford. Professor prolific writer, speaker, defender of the Christian faith, a man who's much sought and receives lots of correspondence. He gets a letter one day from a little girl in America named Marianne. Just a little girl. I don't know how she got the address, but someone must have helped her, maybe her mom or dad. And this is what the letter said. Dear Mr. Lewis, I read your books for children about Narnia. I really like the lion, Aslan, in your stories because he reminds me so much of Jesus and I absolutely love Jesus. But I tried reading one of your other books. I don't know what it was, probably Problem of Pain or... I don't know. He has lots of theological books, too. She said, I tried reading one of your other books and I couldn't understand it. Could you help me? And C.S. Lewis, busy man that he was, wrote her back. And this is what he said. He said, Dear Marianne, I am so thankful that you absolutely love Jesus. And that you love Aslan because he reminds you of Jesus. As far as understanding my other books, I would tell you that doesn't really matter. 
Because I am certain that as long as Jesus is your friend, nothing too bad will ever happen to you. Sincerely, Clive Staples Lewis. I am the door. As long as I am your friend, I promise nothing too bad will ever happen to you. Oh, but I might lose my house. Nothing too bad will ever happen to you. I might lose my job. Nothing too bad will ever happen to you. I might get a terminal illness. Nothing too bad will ever happen to you. I might go through a horrific breakup in a relationship. Nothing too bad will ever happen to you. I might be a victim of violence. Nothing too bad will ever happen to you. How can he say that? How can he say that? Here's how. Because he stood outside of Joseph's tomb on Sunday morning and he said, now I have the keys. I have the keys to the grave. I have the keys to hell. I have every key that's important for your future. And if you will just cling to me, I will unlock the lock on the door, which happens to be me, of eternal life. And you know what? When we've been there 10,000 years, bright, shining, as the sun, we'll have no less days to sing His praise than when we first begun. I read a story recently in the writings of Ellen White in which she recounted a vision that she had. And in her vision, it's very interesting, she and several of her girlfriends, young, in their teens, late teens, several of her girlfriends, she and several of her girlfriends are seated beside a river bank under a tree in heaven. This is a dream she had. And in that dream, there is a gentleman who had been a member of their congregation, an older man of their local church, who had died and been buried. And time had passed. And eventually, here they are in heaven. And as they are seated there beside the river with her friends, this man approaches them in her dream. And they recognize him, and he recognizes them. And there's this greeting and exchange. Oh, I'm so glad you're here. And then he says to them, tell me about it. I fell asleep before you. Tell me, was it hard living till he came? Was it hard? And as she tells this dream, she says, I looked at my girlfriends and we looked at each other and we thought, it seems like there were some difficulties. 
but I can't remember any of them anymore. They said, I can't remember. And then she says this beautiful line. She says, we will discover heaven is cheap enough at any price. That's how come he can say, if you're my friend, nothing too bad will ever happen to you. Nothing. Nothing. So, will you stop looking through the door? Will you stop sitting outside? Will you cross the threshold and enter into relationship with Jesus? Not just today at camp meeting, but every morning until he comes. Will you be found in his word? Will you get out your gospel of John or Matthew or Mark? And will you say a prayer as you open it morning by morning? Lord Jesus, I want to meet you here. I want to become better friends with you here. Will you please cause my heart to burn within me as you teach me along the way? And then will you pray? After you've read some passage there and meditated on it and contemplated it and asked God, please teach me from this passage what is here for me today that I can tie to and that will carry me through today's challenge. And as you meditate and listen to the Holy Spirit speak to your heart, a word from God, a dynamic living word from God, then have a prayer. Thank Him for meeting you there in the quiet. Ask Him to make you mindful throughout the day of what He taught you just now. Thank Him for being willing to partner with you all day until He returns. Get up. Go to whatever is your responsibility waiting for you. And then tell a friend. Tell a friend about your friend, Jesus. He's the door. He's the way. And he's your friend. Now, I had a slide presentation I was going to show you with multimedia and a song. And um, so you're going to have to miss out on the pictures because I found out that it's just too bright in here for the pictures. They were really cool pictures. You would have loved them. (laughs) But I'm going to play the show anyway, and I'm just going to let you listen to the words. Buddy Hotelling, a friend of mine, wrote this song. And I think it's the right song to end with. And so we're going to do it right now. is heavy laden Feeling like the joy is fading Just come Just come I know the song is called Come Believing everything I told you Hear your arms that long to hold you Just come The mask you're hiding Here is someone to confide in I know what you've done Come Tell me everything you're hoping A father loves a heart that's open Just come 
So I recommend Jesus to you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what a wonderful thing it is that you consider us worthy of friendship, that we mattered to you. I just want to thank you for leaving heaven on your rescue mission and for going to Calvary, for stretching your arms wide to show us just how much you love us. And I just pray that uh, the blessing of camp meeting wouldn't fade away. I, I know how often it seems to be the case that a spiritual feast seems to be followed by a desert experience. And, and Lord, I understand from your word that that's not necessary. Because the bread of life is served fresh every morning. And so may we join Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus day by day. And may we just grow in knowing you better until the day we see you in the clouds and look up and say, there's our friend. And hear you say as you smile our direction, I know you too. And I've come to take you home to a party. Oh, hasten that day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.